like human beings, nations sometimes look for love in all the wrong places. It is the week of March 29th, and welcome to episode 73 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, Lester Munson will be doing a deep dive with Admiral James Stefridis, author of the book 2034, A Novel of the Next World War, and contributing author of a white paper with the American Edge Project on National Security Policy. Admiral Stefridis most recently served as the Dean of the Fletcher School. During his military service, Admiral Stefridis served as the commander of the U.S. Southern Command and Supreme Allied Commander Europe. Admiral Stefridis, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be with you, Les. So you've co-written a novel uh, called 2034, uh, which is a great name, and I presume has something to do with being 50 years after 1984. And it involves a future world war involving China, India, Iran, the United States. Can you tell us why on your 10th book you've made the move into the fiction category? Yeah, a lot of people ask me, you know, why didn't you write a policy book about how dangerous the idea of a war between China would be. And the short answer is because policy books tend to be kind of boring often. Number two, they have, frankly, limited appeal beyond policy makers. And thirdly, you can't put characters in a book like that. And for all three of those reasons, I wanted 2034, a novel of the next world war, to be able to have real characters. This is a character-driven novel. The technology's important, but it's not central. It's not Tom Clancy. It's really about the people and about two nations, the United States and China, who terribly sleepwalk into a war without either side really wanting it. And I think if you look back 100 years ago to how we got into the First World War, nations of Europe, miscalculation, an incident in an obscure place, World War One, it was in the Balkans in 2034, a novel of the next world war. It occurs at sea in the South China Sea, disputed waters between the United States and China. So I just felt fiction was the right medium to create a kind of cautionary tale less that hopefully people will read and say, oh, Lord, this is not where we want to end up. How do we avoid it? So, of course, we're coming out of four years of the Trump administration when there was a lot of disruption in the way uh, the United States carried out its national security policy. A lot of changes, particularly vis-a-vis China. And the Biden administration seems to be picking and choosing the good parts that it wants to continue. How much did the lessons and the events of the last four years play into the way you wrote this novel? What really is at the forefront of the novel is bigger than any one administration to be honest with you. This really is the interplay of great powers. And that's been a game that's been afoot for the human species going back 2,500 years ago, at least. Uh, And I'm Greek-American, so I I know this is a fact. Athens and Sparta, two great powers. Uh, Neither had a vested interest in going into a war, but they end up in a Peloponnesian war written about by Thucydides. And if you go through human history from that point forward, about 2,500 years, in the uh, 15 to 20 incidents where an established power uh, is challenged by a rising power, in two-thirds of the occasions, it results in a world war. Most recently, I alluded to the First World War. A hundred years ago, the established power was Great Britain. The rising power 
the Kaiser's Germany. They stumbled into a war. Today, of course, the United States is the established power. We're at the perhaps the end of an American century. The rising power is China. It's a volatile time. And if you look forward 10 to 15 years where 2034 is set, uh, that'll be the moment where technology comes to play. And China's rapid advancements in stealth, nanotechnology, quantum computing, outer space, all of that will give them an emboldened sense. And I think it becomes a period of real danger coming up to us. So this wasn't really about the Obama administration or the Trump administration or the Biden administration, for that matter. It's really about that interplay of great power politics and how we can reduce the chances of unintended consequences leading into a war. Some China watchers who are very concerned similarly with the, with the rise of China and this authoritarian model point out that there are inherent limitations to how far China can go, whether it's the dynamics of their population growth or their lack of individual freedoms or the, the crackdown that they have to do internally to keep folks in line, their inability to persuade other countries of the virtues of their model that China can only go so far. What are, what's your assessment of that view? I think it's too soon to tell, and I wouldn't underestimate the Chinese would be the short answer to the question. But yes, it's correct to say China is not 10 feet tall, and you've touched on several of their disadvantages. They have an aging population, demographics are against them, and the population is also maldistributed in terms of gender. They have many more males than females. Um, That's, generally speaking, not an advantage in a society. Um, They have enormous environmental uh, damage that's been done to the nation that'll have to be remediated. You're correct. They do not have allies in the sense that the United States does. And normally a nation might want to try and alleviate a population shortage by encouraging immigration. Their problem is no one wants to immigrate to China. So yes, they have certainly a group of challenges. On the other hand, They have a cohesive, relatively homogeneous population. They have a dynamic leader, uh, President Xi. Whether you like his policies or not, you have to recognize the the raw strength of his leadership capability. They have 5,000 years of history behind them, a lot of national pride, and uh, they also have uh, access via the oceans uh, to the world. So I think it would be a mistake to say too much that, well, China has great disadvantages. Um, They have some, just as we have some disadvantages here in the United States. Our biggest disadvantage, obviously, is the polarization in our country. That's really not a problem in China for a variety of cultural, historic, demographic reasons. So all nations, you know, they're like people. They get dealt a hand of cards. Our hand of cards here in the United States is a very good one. China's not bad either. It'll be, uh, it'll be a, uh, a challenge for both sides uh, if they underestimate the other. It would be a mistake on either side. I agree with you on the polarization being a a weakness in the United States, but what's your take on this kind of related view that at least in the United States, where we do have these disagreements between different sectors of our population, we discuss them openly, we hash them out politically. It can be a little bit ugly on occasion, 
uh, and we maybe we call each other names a little bit more than we should, but it's a freewheeling, open conversation. We deal with it ourselves. In China, where there are some similar divisions in the society, they're suppressed. They're repressed. The government takes active steps to make sure those things don't emerge. Do you think that in the long run, that plurality and that division is actually an advantage for the United States and a weakness for China? I 100% agree with that. And I would encourage anybody listening, if you want a long form view of what I'm about to say, go read uh, Time Magazine. I wrote the cover story in Time Magazine 2017. It's hanging here on the wall. The cover story is Democracy, Why It Will Prevail. And it really will unpackage something I'll summarize in a minute or two. But think of democracy like a safety valve in a pot, because all nations are boiling pots of water. And the good thing about a democracy is that when the boiling really gets started, there's a relief valve at the top. And you get tired of Barack Obama? Okay, let's bring in Donald Trump. You get tired of Donald Trump? Let's bring in Joe Biden. What happens to a pot on a stove when it really starts boiling and there's no relief valve? Eventually it blows up. And will that happen in the next five years or 500 years? I don't know. But the case I lay out in this Time Magazine story, just Google Time Magazine Stavridis Democracy, it'll pop right up. The case I lay out is that human history is on the side of democracy. A hundred years ago, there were maybe 15 democracies in the world. Today, there is somewhere between 100 and 125. They're in various shades of perfection. Uh, and there's corruption in some and some are backsliding. Okay, I, I get all that. But to go from 15 to over 100 in only 100 years, and these are nations signing up for a very new phenomena. The idea of democracy as we practice it today is only 250 years old, going back to the European Enlightenment. You know, yeah, Greece and Athens had a nascent form of democracy, and the Icelanders will tell you, we had a parliament a thousand years ago, not like what we have now that really touches an entire society. So I'll close with a great quote from Winston Churchill, the world's most quotable man, uh, who said, democracy, it's the worst form of government, except for all the others. I think that's probably the right assessment. I would bet on democracy in the long haul. So let's talk about uh, democracies and alliances. Uh, President Biden had the first meeting with other heads of state in the Quad a few days ago. It was virtual, but it was India, the United States, Japan, Australia coming together. Clearly, the main issue bringing them together is China. What's your take on the on this framework for kind of a future multilateral approach to the challenge from China? I absolutely love it. I've been writing about particularly the new element, which is bringing India into the mix. Uh, I've been writing about it consistently for close to a decade. I think 300 years from now, when a historian looks at the 21st century, she is not going to be writing centrally about the rise of China. I think geopolitically, she'll be writing about the rise of India because of demographics, young country, because they're already a democracy. They got that safety valve because they are already connected deeply to the West because of their previous participation in the Commonwealth, uh, because of English as a lingua franca. Um, there are a lot of reasons to bet on India this century. So the idea of the quad, which brings three 
more or less traditional post-World War II allies, uh, US, Japan, Australia, together with India. That's brilliant. And uh, this is also an outgrowth, I'm proud to say as a Navy Admiral, on a military dimension of exercises in the Indian Ocean by the nations of the Quad, the Malabar exercises. These have been going on for about five years. And I think this is something the Trump administration uh, recognized was the importance of India. The Biden administration has picked that up. Makes a lot of sense to me. I would say the next step beyond the Quad, which is kind of focused on the Pacific and China, is what some have called the, the rise of the techno-democracies. And this is an idea my friends Jared Cohen and uh, Richard Fontaine have written about in Foreign Affairs. They call it the T12, the 12 uh, technologically oriented, Western value oriented democracies. So they're pretty obvious who they are. They're a clutch of US, Canada, plus the larger NATO nations, but it's also Finland and Sweden who are not in NATO, but very close. It's Japan, it's India, it's Israel, Australia. It kind of expands the idea of the quad with a particular focus on cyber cybersecurity. I think that's a very logical follow-on to the quad, and I applaud the Biden administration seizing that very early in the uh, in the early days of this new administration. Let me ask you about a kind of a more paleo possibility, which is Russia. Right. Clearly, the last administration, President Trump tried to do his own personal idiosyncratic outreach to Moscow to not very good effect. But if you're thinking strategically, at least in the old school, about the best way to counter a rising power, you're looking for allies anywhere you can get them. The U.S. and Russia would have some mutual interests in and concern about a rising China. Is that at all possible or should we look in other places for more allies as, as we go forward? Yeah, I think like like human beings, nations sometimes look for love in all the wrong places. And I think, uh, I'll just be very blunt. Um, I think President Biden uh, some time ago was asked what he thought of Vladimir Putin and said he's a killer. And he is. He's a KGB colonel. Uh, he's got that mentality. He truly, deeply, madly hates the United States of America. He hates NATO. He would do anything to break us away from our NATO allies. And therefore, Unfortunately, I think we are not going to get much traction with Russia. And by the way, in the novel 2034, Vladimir Putin still hanging around. He's an octogenarian at this point in 2034. But we know he's going to live a long time because he takes his shirt off all the time. We know he's super fit. Uh, seriously, I'd, I'd bet on him to go a long ways. And he's going to be the czar of all the Russians till the day he dies. Therefore, um, we ought to cultivate the other nations that I just mentioned. India really is the answer to this uh, idea of where does the United States go to find a balance. Um, and by the way, there are other nations who have very positive demographics um, who are in rough alignment with the United States, both vibrant democracies. One is Brazil and the other is Nigeria. For example, very populous nations and very young nations, democracies, and, you know, they'll go through twists and turns in their national leadership because they are democracies. Uh, but I think this is a long way of saying the U.S. has plenty of options. Russia and China really have only one option, and it's each other. And that's going to be a reality of the next 20 to 40 years, I would say. 
One of the issues the Biden administration's made a high priority, of course, is climate change. They've described it as an existential threat to humanity. As a veteran of national security concerns and kind of real bottom line questions about our position in the world, how do you build climate change into a national security approach in a way that doesn't sacrifice our interests on the ground, particularly vis-a-vis China? China's the biggest carbon emitter in the world, and it's growing. They're not even going to think about restraining themselves until 2030. How does the administration make those trade-offs when it's making decisions about national security? I think you begin by articulating, admitting, and taking action to recognize that it's a real challenge, climate, and it's a national security challenge. And sometimes people say to me, well-meaning people, they say, oh, that's a bunch of political correctness. I don't want the military involved in that. That has nothing to do with the military. That is oh so wrong. I'll give you three quick examples. One is the Arctic, where take it from me as a mariner, not a climatologist. I've been to the Arctic. I've sailed those waters. The ice is melting. And as it melts, it's going to open up new venues of geopolitical competition between the U.S., our NATO allies, and Russia, as well as China, who see themselves as a principal stakeholder in the high north. Number two, uh, Think of all the time that our military spend responding to natural disasters, hurricanes, forest fires. Uh, all of that is time lost, opportunity cost to our national security. Thirdly, even more importantly, the effects of climate change are creating a drought in uh, the Middle East, principal cause in the Syrian civil war in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as in Central America. That's part of the reason we're seeing waves of refugees headed toward this nation from Latin America. So these are all national security concerns. The uh, Biden administration has done the right thing, elevating the issue. Uh, John Kerry is an inspired choice. Putting him on the National Security Council as a principal is a big deal, never been done before. That's where these issues will come together. So with all that as preamble, I would say that climate is actually a potential zone of cooperation between the United States and China. And God knows we need some if we're going to avoid a war in 2034. I think both nations roughly have aligned uh, interest in ensuring the planet continues to be a functioning ecosystem. So I really do believe, and if you look back before the Trump administration to the Paris Climate Accords, U.S. and China actually came together to bring those off. This is one where I really disagree with the Trump administration's decision to pull out of those. Biden administration rejoined them, you know, not in the first month, not the first week, not the first day, in the first hour. I think that was the right thing to do for all the reasons I said a moment ago. So we should look at it as a potential zone of cooperation. And yes, Les, you are right. We'll have to trade it off against ownership of the South China Sea, treatment of Uyghurs, uh, pressure applied to Japan, and a hundred other issues. But this is one where cooperation is more possible than some of those other zones. Let's uh, seize it if we can. Let's talk about one other issue before we kind of get back to the tech question. And and this is the issue of human rights. The Trump administration put it on the back burner, if it had it on the burner at all. The Biden administration's put it back on the front burner. They're talking about it a lot more. It comes up more in our diplomatic conversations with all of our friends and allies. What's the best way to actually make a difference on human rights issues in the world? Is it rhetoric? Is it bringing up in these meetings? Or should we be holding our friends and allies more to account in the way they treat their own populations? How far should we 
we go in making human rights a concern for the United States? Yeah, let, let's start by stipulating we are a values-based nation. And so what are our values? They're democracy, liberty, two different things, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, freedom of education, freedom of assembly, gender equality, racial equality. I think we all know the list. Um, look, we execute them imperfectly. We see that often, but they're the right values. And we ought to, we must continue, as it says in the Constitution, to create a more perfect union to keep trying. So with that as stipulation, here's what I would say we do about it. Number one, we have the difficult internal conversations in the United States to try and resolve the places where we fall short of our values. At the moment, uh, gender equality, racial equality are pretty significant. So is socioeconomic inequality. There are a thousand mechanisms to try and address those. We don't have time to do all of that on this show. But I think there's an internal component. Externally, and you hit the nail on the head, it's all about being with our friends, our allies, our partners. Those are three different categories. I think with allies, we have to hold them to a very high standard. If we're going to be in alliance with the nation, um, we cannot pledge ourselves to defend with blood and treasure a nation that doesn't share our values. But we do that with the NATO nations. That's 29 nations. We do it with Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and others. So I think externally allies, that's the highest standard. Partners, kind of one click down. We look for reasonably high standards. Friends, eh, you know, we, we have to share views and, and put pressure. But, you know, this whole question is not an on and off switch where we put every nation to a purity test and that if, if they pass it, they're in. And if they fail it, they're out. That's unrealistic. Um, life isn't an on and off switch. It's kind of a rheostat, you know, like the dimmer in your dining room. You got to dial it in. I would say that the Trump administration had turned it down, wasn't, as you said, super important. I think with the Biden team, it's much more important. But that doesn't mean we're going to simply stop engaging with nations that don't share our values. Allies, different story. Partners, higher standard. Friends, and we hope pretty much everyone's a friend. A bit of a, you know, well, let's talk about it. And then lastly, I'll say with our opponents, our our challengers with China. I think when human rights violations are so gross as from all I can see in the treatment of Uyghurs, essentially concentration camps, re-education, kind of looks like genocide to me. Um, the crackdown in Hong Kong, which violates all the agreements China signed up to in 97 when the Crown Colony was transferred. Um, I think we call them out on that. And that's the point at which we turn to our allies, partners, and friends and say, come with us, come with us and put pressure on China. And if we do that collectively with economic sanctions, with cultural opprobrium, I think we have a better chance of modifying behaviors. That would be my approach. So you worked on a white paper for the American Edge Project, talking about protecting our tech innovation. Of course, this is critically important as China puts a lot of effort into advancing high tech sectors of its economy and really challenging our leadership in, in those areas. In some cases, they're already ahead of us. What's the best way for the U.S. to meet that challenge? Is it by unleashing our free market forces? Is it by having more government intervention in the economy? Is it some combination of both? What's your 
instinct. Um, this will not surprise you given the tenor of our conversation thus far, but there is no silver bullet. There is no single thing that's going to meet the challenges of China's rising tech capability, which is on full display in, in the novel 2034. Let me give you three or four ideas. Number one, education. We have to put more resources and energy in this nation into STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. We've all been beating the drum about that for decades. Um, we are falling further and further behind, particularly with China. So education. Number two, let's put a particular focus on cyber and cybersecurity. Um, the two kind of come hand in hand as follows. I'm, I'm holding up an iPhone 12. What do you think the average age is at which we put this in the hands of a child in the United States. It's about 11 years old, 10 and a half in many places. Um, they're not educated for that. Um, there's a whole tranche of the education point I made a moment ago about educating children, middle schoolers, high school students, college students, adults about what's real on the internet. What is fake news? What is deliberate misinformation? What is rumor? What is lies? These are all different categories. And there are techniques in which you can become educated to differentiate between them. I think that's critical. So education broadly, a particular focus on cyber. Thirdly, research and development. This is the government's role. And relative to China, our investment in research and basic research has been going down. And we're uh, trying to kind of say, hey, let the free market worry about that. Let the big pharma figure that out. Let the tech companies pay for it. It's not going to work. And uh, that doesn't mean we need centrally planned research and development. But that really brings me to my fourth point, which is private-public cooperation, getting Silicon Valley and the Pentagon working together. And that has been challenging at times. Um, getting the social networks, if you will, uh, communicating with government in a positive way. Um, there are a lot of private public uh, ideas, I think, that, that can be very positive. And then uh, lastly, I'll say that um, we need to recognize that, that tech, technology, cyber in particular, but really broadly speaking, technology, which is what is achieved through education, research and development, some level of government work. Yes, the free market. Boy, it's critical if we are going to compete with China going forward. So there's a few ideas to get us started. I'll, I'll close on the cyber point by recommending people read the report of the Solarium Commission which looked at uh, cyber in particular and tech to some degree in great depth in all of this. All right, last and probably best question comes from Grant. So Admiral, thanks so much for taking the time to, to speak with us. I really wanna to try to connect uh, what you said here at the end to the very beginning of our conversation about why you wrote a fiction piece um, you know, the Cyberspace Solarium is a great, great report. I also heartily endorse people take a look at it. Um, but, I, you know, most people won't uh, because it's dry, it's long, and it's technical. And one of the problems I think we often have as foreign policy wonks is that we like talking to each other because it's easy and you can use shorthand and you don't have to explain why it matters so much that we become good friends with India or why we have to deal with Saudi Arabia, even if we don't like their human rights record. But how do you think about communicating difficult foreign policy questions with the public? And do you think that fiction is the future of policy writing? Yeah, 
That's a wonderful way to put it. Um, I think there's going to be a role for those, shall we say, drier, more technical conversations between policymakers. And it's not just books, of course, but journals like Foreign Affairs and uh, all the different modalities. And that is an important uh, culture, just like, you know, the biker culture in America or the roller skating culture. There's a foreign policy culture where you're exactly right. We, we know the drill. We know the shorthand. We know the arguments. When we say idealist versus realist, uh, you know, there's a whole language to it. But yes, we've got to crack open that whole conversation to the public. And the novel 2034, a novel of the next world war, is a cautionary tale to do that. And I'll give you another media that, that I love. I don't know where listeners are on this, but I love graphic novels. And I'm hoping that we can get 2034 in a graphic novel format. And I'll give you a very practical example of this. If you haven't seen the 9-11 Commission Report graphic, check it out. It's fabulous. It is a graphic representation of arguably one of the most important reports done by the government in the last 100 years, the 9-11 Commission, which created the Department of Homeland Security, created the TSA, changed the way we live, and by the way, has prevented, the actions taken, have prevented another significant international terrorist attack in the United States for 20 years. Now we have a domestic terrorist attack, I would argue, on the 6th of January, but we'll work through that. In any event, graphic novels, I think, are part of the future. And finally, how about film, miniseries? Um, I'm talking to a number of folks in Hollywood about 2034. It screams for a visual representation. And I think the big issues to include uh, what we talk about here, the competition with China, but um, I'll tease you here, the sequel to 2034, I think is going to be about cyber and artificial intelligence maybe in 2044, 2054. Stay tuned. Admiral, this has uh, really been terrific. Thanks for joining us on Fault Lines. My pleasure. And thank you for what you do to bring these issues to the public. It matters. Thanks a lot. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.